Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claver, your host, and with me today, all the way from Australia, Wailu. Hey. Sean, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. It's about the same as every week, so. <laughs> it's, all the days are just a blur to me. It's just like, since I work from home, it's like, oh, okay, just, okay, go into my little room and start working. Yeah, it's just weird, isn't it? Time passes much quicker when you're the older you get, right? So, <laughs> not saying you're old, I'm just saying like, <laughs> these days things happen yep. so quickly. So. Yep. I'm getting up there, so a little bit, a little bit. We all are. All right. <laughs> uh, let's bring on our guest, Alex Malabasi. Welcome, Alex. Hey, Parion. Uh, thank you for having me. Oh, no problem, no problem. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates, and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Why don't you start us off, kind of give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself and what you do and and then how you got into development. Sure. I, I'm from Brazil, but I live in Ireland, Dublin. I've been working with software development for 15 years with .NET Platform and other Microsoft technologies related things, a SQL Server, Azure, and this kind of thing. I'm a Microsoft MVP, developer technologies, and I participate a lot of meetups in Brazil, Europe, and other parts of the globe weekly. And I contribute with the technical communities through my technical blog, YouTube channel, and a lot of related stuff. So I'm pretty active about Microsoft technologies and Blazor mainly, I would say. Okay. So Blazor, there's been a lot of things going on with Blazor. You know, it's it's been nice since it's it's came about. Uh, our other host that's not here today, Caleb, he's been doing some work on that. So why don't you get us a little familiarized with those that don't know about Blazor or haven't listened to our other shows that we had talk about Blazor. So what is it? And uh, How's it, why is it important? It is important because Microsoft didn't have a native single page application option among .NET platform. Usually developers who wanted to combine a single page application with .NET platform, ASP.NET Core Web API, or even before ASP.NET Core, with .NET Framework, needed to use uh, Angular, Vue.js, React, and other popular JavaScript frameworks. And Blazor came up to combine the advantages of single-page application, but uh, using 100% C-sharp and WebAssembly. So it's possible for developers to run C-sharp in the browser and develop 100% a single-page application not using JavaScript or something else, only C-sharp, which is pretty cool. 
I started testing and delivering, even in production, some applications using the first versions of Blazor, even before it was introduced to .NET platform officially. It was pre-beta. Uh, version. So I know a bit of the history uh, of the versions, uh, stability, and the points we are now. So, but uh, in summary, it's the um, single page application of uh, .NET platform right now. I guess over the years we've been doing this podcast, we've kind of seen it really grow from it being a um, kind of like an almost like an experiment to being something that they was getting being a little bit more serious with, and then. Now we're at a stage where people are actually starting to, to use it in production. Do you reckon it's production ready, you think? Yes, I have. And I have even before Microsoft announced that it was ready for production because I, I really loved Blazor since the beginning. But if we compare the types of Blazor applications, I believe uh, Blazor server is more mature for production applications and WebAssembly has is still having some limitations and it's kind of hard to debug issues on Visual Studio. It's not the same experience for developers as we have in standard backend application uh, using C Sharp. So, but I, but I, I do have some applications in production since like three years ago. Uh, and I still mocking uh, some more advanced things, but uh, in my opinion, it's ready for production already. So I, I have some like a fair bit of experience with Angular and things like that. So when I whenever I debug, I actually never use um, Visual Studio like to, to actually debug in just the front end. Like I usually just use the another Chrome console app or something or the that the, the inspector but do you when you actually debug a WebAssembly application do you actually like does chrome and all, all these browsers offer anything on the front end to for, for de- debugging WebAssembly code yes i try to use the native options for debug presented on visual studio and vs code as well but i don't think that works perfectly well so what I try to do always for Blazor WebAssembly is to not like develop 1,000 lines of code and after I run the application to see what's going on. Usually I, I prefer babe steps because it's it's not so easy to debug if you compare with other types of .NET applications. Mm. So are there times when it's better to use you know, a Blazor server and then other times where it's better to use Blazor WebAssembly? I think so. I For Blazor server, I think it's, it's proper if you have authentication aspects, more sensitive data that you need to handle in the server. I think it's much better to control what's being trafficking between the server and the client. But one problem we have with Blazor server is the fact that it uses SignalR to sync the front end and the back end. And usually on-premise server or uh, or even servers hosted on Azure or the platforms has limitations in terms of WebSocket connections for each server. So if you have a large scale application with 
thousands or a million of users. I don't think Blazor server is the best option. I would prefer like Razor, uh, standard Razor pages, Asp.NET MVC, or even Blazor WebAssembly. But uh, I would decide if I go to Blazor server or Blazor WebAssembly, if I have to handle too much security things in the application, I would go from Blazor server. Uh, because I know nobody's gonna download the DLLs of the application in the browser and try to reverse engineering something and this kind of thing. But I mean, even with the, with the Blazor WebAssembly stuff, you'd you'd be able to control what goes on the client, right? You wouldn't have everything running on the client, or would you? I don't know. Um, yes, we can control, but uh, but I, my, in my opinion, when we are dealing with a project or with maybe a hundreds of developers or something like that, it's really hard to track some security aspects and what's being running on the client or the server. So I, I prefer avoid that. And I never seen someone reverse engineering DLLs to see how the code looks like. I'm, I'm not sure if that's possible nowadays, but uh, I prefer to avoid until we are sure that the, the browsers are going to block the access to certain files and, and this kind of thing. Well, I guess I'd say that from a security point of view, anything that you you know you send to the client side is you know whether 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 it is possible to inspect it or not. It's by nature of it, it's, it's insecure and you shouldn't be putting anything sensitive in those DLLs, right? So. Exactly. Hmm. And and one, one aspect that many developers don't understand so much about uh, Blazor WebAssembly is the fact that despite Blazor transpires C-sharp to WebAssembly code, we don't touch WebAssembly directly. So, and if we try to inspect the bug WebAssembly in the browser, it's pretty hard to follow and understand. So I don't think that's insecure because of the WebAssembly itself, because it's not human being readable. But definitely, if there is like a minimal chance of reverse engineering of a DLL, it's better to avoid connection strings, tokens, and any kind of these things uh, in the client side. I think even Microsoft learned the hard way that uh, Blazor Server is not really meant for high-load applications. I, I was talking to Scott Hunter once uh, at, from Microsoft about they used to use the uh, the try.net website, used to be running on Blazor Server. <laughs> he would get the, the bills really for, for running that, you know, out of Azure, you know, just, you know, Microsoft just transfers it from one, one pocket to the other. But... But yeah, he said that, uh, yeah, that was crazy just trying to do that all with Blazor server. So it now runs, uh, you know, Blazor's WebAssembly. Yes. And considering Blazor is, is quite new in the market, I think developers and companies are learning what type of projects a server or WebAssembly is, is the best option for each project. But I, I like the direction that Blazor is going in general in terms of performance and stability. I know there are some benchmarks that Angular app size is smaller 
than uh, Blaze or WebAssembly app, or if you compare with Vue.js or React. But uh, but I don't think they are c- comparable because they are different things. So, what, what do you think? Do you think um, Blazor is like the, at least the use cases? Are they kind of like a competitor to Vue.js or Angular or React? I think the the initial idea, as far as I, I I could see over the last three four years, is that the initial approach for a Blazor would be based on web applications. But uh, definitely, it's going to native and hybrid applications real soon. And I th- in my opinion, in the next few years, the majority of Blazor applications won't be web applications anymore. And it's going to transition slowly to a more native or multi-platform deployment and this kind of thing. So right now, I see as a as a competitor of Vue.js, Angular, and React because it was meant to be a single-page application. However, I don't think someone will convince a JavaScript developer to learn mm. C-sharp to use a Blazor at all. <laughs> That's just pretty true, I think. So when you say native, are you talking like, like Android apps or PWAs or something, or Electron apps? Yes, I tested uh, .NET MAUI with Blazor, which is in preview and won't be production ready yet in November with the .NET 6, only uh, next year. But uh, definitely, it's kind of too much easy to create hybrid and native applications now using Blazor. Mm. That I, I do I do believe that's when again like relevant markets if you compare with Android and iOS and other platforms even Flutter I think uh, I would say the biggest competitor in the next few years with Blazor is Flutter uh, from Google because the the idea is kind of similar. So you mentioned .NET 6, you know, as we record this, it's coming out in about a month. So is there any changes in Blazor for .NET 6? Yes, there are. The, the biggest improvement is the hot reload, the real hot reload without using like .NET Watcher and this kind of thing. It, it's working great for C-sharp code and front-end code as well. So if you change something on, on a Razor component, that's going to reflect automatically to the browser. And if you change even a class in, in any projects in the solution that affects directly the the component that is open in the browser that's going to update update as well uh, so it's working pretty great and we have some error handling improvements until .NET 5 if a single component failed to ha- to render or to process something the entire blazor application crashes and the experience the user experience is completely lost and we have nice components and ways to to isolate or to prevent propagate the, the error of certain components so 
I think these ones are the biggest improvements in Blazor if we don't count on the native apps experience integrated with Maui, uh, which I think it's it's the most relevant part of this release. We have a bunch of minor uh, updates, but um, but I, as far as I could test and use, I think these are the most relevant ones. So what's it like to uh, you know start developing with Blazor? Is it is it just like writing any other your Razor page? What kind of Sony never did Blazor before, but they've done you know like just web forms or you know Razor pages or things like that. How is it different in their development? If a developer is familiar with Razor in general. Could be Razor Pages projects or AspNet MVC. The adaptation will be uh, quite fast. But um, one thing that that is pretty different, I think, that the developers need to take some time to learn is the life cycle of a Blazor component. Because uh, if we compare with uh, AspNet MVC or or the traditional Razor pages, it's quite clear that the life cycle starts by the request and everything is processed in the server and returned to the browser. With Blazor, is different. Uh, the, the life cycle because it follows similar workflow that Angular, React, and Vue.js, and the other single-page applications, application frameworks uh, follow. I so I think that takes some time to adapt a little the mentality to work with Blazor, but I but I think it's really fast the adaptation and the learning process. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, and what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. You reckon they'd be on the, the stage now where there'll be like major changes? You know how like sometimes you learn a framework like AngularJS and then all of a sudden they... You know, decide to get rid of AngularJS and make it Angular kind of thing. Um, you can they're, they're at a stage now where you can learn Blazor without the threat of doing something, and then they they completely change their mind. You know, six months down the track, of the, what the best practice is. Yeah, as as what happened uh, with uh, other single page applications or any framework based on components, I've seen many problems in Blazor projects that I not only the ones I developed myself <laughs> over time, but uh, some projects that some companies started developing and reach me out to figure out what's going on is the high dependence dependence between components parents and child ones so you can have like 50 55 or 60 components uh, linked to a parent uh, component if you do that 
you can't figure out basically what's happening. So in terms of good practices or what to avoid doing in Blazor applications, I would say if if a component or a page or a specific functionality has too many responsibilities, it's time to rethink what you are doing because you are going to have a nightmare Mm. Uh, real soon to figure out what's going on. So I think it's the same principles that we can apply for programming, basically, like solid principles and, and this kind of thing can apply really well for Blazor applications and how we plan and design the, arch- the overall architecture, etc. When I first saw Blazor demoed, you know, I, they were showing Blazor Server. And one of the things about Blazor Server is whenever they made a change, everybody that was connected to the server got this little notice that, hey, your, your connection is dead lost and things like that. So I think they've improved things since then as far as like managing state. What's the best way to, to do state management with Blazor, especially Blazor Server? Yeah, that's a tricky question because if a single page application was meant to run in the client, even offline, as a progressive web apps, etc., the the state needs to rely on first what's happening in the client. Only if the user refreshes, it should uh, sync back any server changes. But um, considering Blazor server depends relies on SignalR, I think the trick part is WebSocket connection. So the the SignalR for uh, .NET 5, since, since .NET Core 3.1 and with improvements in .NET 5 and .NET 6 improved the reconnection aspect if a WebSocket connection uh, gets lost. I think that's the the main uh, the main issue that happens. But uh, definitely, I think if we are using Blazor, we should do as much as we can in the client side. So only if the user refresh the page and refresh the entire application again, we should retrieve the stage from the server itself. Everything should work fine through SignalR. Yeah, I feel like it's just my, it's just my gut feel that from what I've been reading, that I, like once they, they improve the experience of the, the WebAssembly side, I think most of the use cases will be Blazor on the, on the client side because I mean it, it just seems so expensive like having the the, serv- the server side version it would only really be good for like really small apps or just like pages where you don't really access it because you know like basically if you're doing the server side you're you're handling all the processing for all of your clients instead of being able to offload all of that stuff to to their computer you know so it just it doesn't seem like it scales very well just the concept itself yeah I don't believe I don't believe you Blazor was created for running in the server, like the the Blazor server project type. I think it was something that was created for like a transition mm, time. Like a bridging thing, yeah. And she web assembly was completely ready. Mm. And but um as what happens with other transition technologies in in the Microsoft environment, many too many companies are already using Blazor <laughs> Server. So and yeah. they 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 will need to support that for longer, I think. Well, is it actually 
like on on that note, is it easy to change? Like, um, if you're on an existing project user server, can you change to WebAssembly, or do you have to do any changes to your code, or is it just project properties change to compile to WebAssembly? I think the, it depends on how complex the project is and and the way it was structured uh, in the Blazor server, but uh, it shouldn't be complicated. Mm. If it is complicated to migrate, probably something was developed in a wrong way mm. uh, because uh, each the com- the Blazor components themselves should stay exactly the same. I'm guessing so, it's probably dependent on how you've structured your code because we were talking about how there is like code that's necessary to stay in the server. So if you've coupled it so that it runs in the, in the same DLL as the one you sent to the client side, you have to refactor that and things like that. Yes, exactly. Instead, for instance, if you have to load data uh, from an API or a database from a, a component, and instead, many developers, instead of creating like a separate DLL, separate projects uh, for this responsibility and just make a, a reference to that in the in the components, sometimes the entire code is in, uh, in the components, database call, uh, <laughs> entry framework, a lot yeah. of stuff. So we, we see that, that happen, uh, happening a lot with uh, Aspenet MVC as well, where we have like tons of codes and entry framework stuff in controllers. So and in Razor pages as well. What are some of the uh, cool things that you've built in Blazor? You know, how, how much fun can you have and what can you do with it? Okay. The very first thing that I did and I I do recommend to other developers do uh, for who wants to test Blazor in a real project is don't go to a production, don't migrate a production application yet. So I, I would recommend to um, migrate or develop application or corporate applications for uh, internal purposes like administrator application and, and it's kind of thing just to start doing something uh, internally but uh, with a real project and once you are comfortable and you you felt a little how uh, WebAssembly works, how the debugging process uh, for Blazor application works, etc. Start to scale and do more complex things uh, for production. But uh, literally, I I like to do enterprise projects like intranets and this kind of thing because they don't need so much uh, performance for the first download of the application and and this kind of thing. It's a more controlled uh, environment, but I don't like to do so much websites because the uh, the CEO, the, the performance, we can't guarantee so much. Uh, so I would recommend like do, do whatever internal projects have in your company or by yourself before you go to a large scale application, uh, mainly because when you start developing with Blazor, you are going to figure out it's not so easy to debug application. So if you build a really big critical application in Blazor, you have to consider that's gonna not going to be easy to, to track and resolve issues in production. Yeah, I think any public-facing application 
always has so many more things you got to consider. Like I said, SEO and performance, where the, where the users are coming from, load, you know, every, like on an enterprise that we can control within the, the browser that they use and things like that to some, to some extent. So. Yeah, a lot more to think about on a public-facing website. Yes, exactly. And I, I think for a large-scale website for public access, probably Angular, React, and Vue.js are better options right now. So, what are some of the learning lessons that you've you've learned as you first got started with Blazor? You know, things that to, to watch out for, things that you, you probably can't do or might need to do a little bit of a different way. The Microsoft learning platform is pretty good for not, not only for Blazor, but uh, for any uh, Microsoft technology. It's improving. I'm taking like uh, Azure certifications only studying using Microsoft learning portal without like paying any expensive course for that. I would go to Microsoft learning and I would follow developers who are sharing knowledge on Blazor in a constant basis, like some Microsoft MVPs and it is kind of thing because if we look into the official documentation or do any online course that won't have production systems as examples and real scenarios. So, but I think the Microsoft MVPs and uh, other members of uh, technical communities in general are doing a great job sharing knowledge in Blazor. So I would recommend to follow whoever you find on Twitter or in social media who is sharing Blazor content uh, on a constant basis. What kind of things uh, have we covered that uh, would be important for our listeners to know about uh, when they're working with Blazor? Or? I think one important thing is to understand that one technology or framework doesn't replace another one. So uh, we have, for instance, 1 million JavaScript frameworks available to use and every week uh, new ones are are released and are created so but it doesn't necessarily mean an, a new the the previous one or other javascript models will disappear from the market so regarding blazor it doesn't have the intention of become obsolete. Uh, Aspenet MVC, Aspenet Razor, Angular, React, JS, or, or any other framework or type of projects. So I would recommend, and I think it's really important to note that learning Blazor is important, but um, learning other things are important too. So learning uh, Blazor is a new technology. So nobody knows where that will be in a few years and there are not, not many companies using that yet. So I would keep your eyes not only Blazor, but in other things that are happening, in, mainly in web development, in order to um, be able to compare and choose the correct technology for your project. That's great. Jeez. So where do you think they're going to take Blazor? Where is it, where is it going to go after, you know, .NET 6? I do believe other frameworks will start using WebAssembly as Blazor is doing, like Angular, React, and Vue.js and other frameworks are going to start using WebAssembly. So I think that's going to take a few years until WebAssembly become really popular 
in in the market and after that happens in three four years i believe blazor considering it started using WebAssembly, like it was one of the first uh, frameworks available working with WebAssembly. i think that will be pretty mature and stable to gain market if we compare with other future uh, WebAssembly frameworks. But uh, in conclusion, I would say uh, Blazor is going to transition uh, time to time with .NET 6, .NET 7, .NET 8, and .NET 10 because it's uh, like a public open roadmap for Blazor. It will be ready for developing like multi-platform applications. So you will develop an application once and will generate the, the compiled and the necessary files for desktop, mobile uh, applications, Android, iOS, Linux, Windows, macOS, and, and this kind of thing, including web for web servers. So I think that's going to be the future of Blazor and WebAssembly in general. Do you reckon, you reckon that's what will happen to, to the other frameworks as well, like other JavaScript frameworks? They'll all eventually move to WebAssembly? Like we're talking Angular, React, and things like that? I, I believe they will provide an alternative. Mm. So I'm not sure at the, what the direction is going to be, but um, but I, I do believe we will have in the future AngularJS and Angular WebAssembly, Vue.js and Vue mm. WebAssembly. So a, a separated roadmap and, and frameworks under the same one. I, I, I think that's going to happen real soon. Yeah, I mean, it could just be that. I mean, I'm guessing they're not going to change things too much from the developer experience because you can you can use JavaScript to compile to WebAssembly as well, right? So it might just be that they you still develop your app the same way you normally do, but then when it compiles the application, it'll compile into WebAssembly, maybe for performance reasons or or whatever. Yes, and and I think when WebAssembly becomes popular and the developers start realizing that they can do a lot of stuff on mm. the browser more than they used to do, mm. we we are going to transition again between the debate of client versus server. Mm. So the the devices etc are powerful but uh, they don't have infinite memory and cpu so i think that that's going to be a learning process for the developers as well but i i crashed google chrome a couple times using WebAssembly already uh, with blazor so a couple times all right awesome awesome Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock mountain time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's 
using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. I think I'm going to move us into picks. If, unless there's something else that you want to bring up, Alex? I don't know if I'm proud of that, but I, I'm a huge fan of Dragon Ball. Hmm. So as you may not know, they still releasing uh, monthly uh, Dragon Ball episodes. So I recommend you to take a look <laughs> of, of what's happening in Dragon Ball because when I started watching that, when I was a kid, the Goku was the main character was of a certain age and he is a grandfather now. Oh, and I, yeah. I, I'm watching uh, their family growing and a, lo a lot of cool stuff happening so take a look on dragon ball so in the show they grow on like real time is it <laughs> like yeah, oh, yeah okay. basically gosh I was, like imagine if like the simpsons did that like homer or simpson would be like in his 80s or something now <laughs> i think so like <laughs> i'd be like a middle-aged man or something all right my pick this week is going to be something that earlier this year we had a leak under one of our sinks and it didn't get too bad. We just, you know, we, we found it early enough that it was just kind of got things under the, under the cabinet, got a little wet and things like that. So we did some research and found these little devices that we can now put under our sinks or under our like hot water heater and things like that. And it's a water sensor and alarm, but it also connects to your phone. So if one of them does, you know, get tripped, like maybe when you're away, it'll actually let you know on your phone which is really cool. And so they're made by a company called Govi and you can buy them in a, in a three pack to start out with. And it comes with one little device that that's kind of the hub for all of them. And then you just kind of, you know, plug them in and register them with your phone and with this hub and uh, place them around the house. So we've had one go off already once, but that was, again, it was just because something got a little bit wet, nothing <laughs> bad. So, <laughs> so we're we're kind of lucking out. So, yeah, if, if you're worried about water leaks in your house, check out these uh, Gobi uh, water sensors. So, are they? Do you actually plug them into the electrical socket, or is it battery power? The hub does. The hub does, but the the devices themselves are out of battery powered. Oh, okay. And they they last for years, I'm guessing. Right? Yep. And then it'll let you know on the app if the battery's low or whatever. You oh, yeah. Do something with it. Yeah, I can see how that could be useful. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Why would you pick? All right. So this week's pick, and to be honest, I don't actually know what the formal name of it's called. So I'm just going to call it like rock painting, dropping or something like that. So basically, like my kids, they've been, they've been like, no, we've been through lockdown and there's not much for them to do. So they've been getting these rocks and um, we get these acrylic 
paint and we'd like paint it and then we just drop it off somewhere like around the neighborhood and then you go on this facebook group and kind of tell people where it is and then you can also walk around and other kids are doing it and they're, they're basically swapping rocks but it's, it's really cool because um it gives the kids something to do and then when they find the rock they're all like really excited as well so i was gonna maybe put a link to my region's kind of facebook group for um for rock collecting i guess so but yeah, it's just a fun little hobby to do and when there's you can't do anything right now so <laughs> So it's kind of like geocaching for rocks. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, exactly. <laughs> like, um, it's like the <laughs> modern version of geocaching, basically. So, yeah. So we just, we just walk around the neighborhood and then all of a sudden you see this weird little rock with like a little, you know, like an ice cream on it or something. And you're like, oh, cool. You know, everyone's all really happy. So, and then you go home and then you make your own and then you drop it off somewhere else. So, yeah. During lockdown, I think people around here were doing like, Putting bears, they were hiding bears in the yard or the windows, <laughs> and then the kids would have to walk walk around and find where the little stuffed animal bears or bear signs or whatever were. Yeah, so, yeah. And their parents pretty creative. Parents need to keep the kids busy. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Thanks, Alex, for coming on the show. It was great to have you on the show. Glad to have you talking about Blazer and those kinds of things. Great. Thank you very much, and I, I enjoy uh, the podcast. I, I watch uh, almost all the other episodes, so I, I got surprised when I was invited because <laughs> I, I'm kind of a, a listener for quite some time. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I was uh, uh, working with a, a fellow once uh, a couple of months back, and uh, we just kind of brought up the topic of, hey, you have a podcast, which one? I said, Adventures.net. Oh. I listened to that one. I didn't know that was you. It's like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> on the intro, you skip the intro where I say, Hey, this is Sean Clemo. Okay. He says, yep. Well, now it's nice to know who, who that person is. And so it's great. If uh, people have questions, Alex, and they want to reach out to you, how, it's the best way to get in touch. The best option, like all my social media profiles are professional bus for public. I have like on Facebook and uh, LinkedIn thousands of developers. I accept uh, like everyone. Everyone is my friend. If they want to talk about like software development, so just search Malavaz Blazer and it's gonna I'm gonna find my my social media profiles. We'll put those links on on the show notes there. Great. All right. If our listeners want to reach out and get in touch with the show, we'd love to hear from you. Get your feedback. Let us know what we can do, what we can cover. They can reach me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. (laughs) (laughs) And why is not on Twitter? I'm on LinkedIn. No. All right. Great, guys. Thanks for everything. We'll catch everybody else on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Thank you. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.